Namaste. Shurabindo's life through his poems. The reason, one reason why we have chosen this medium is because Shurabindo himself said that his life has not been on the surface for men to see. What we see is a crowding of events and circumstances, situations that evolve and devolve. But what goes on within? At one one of the places in Nessus on the Gita, Sri says, action and event have no importance in themselves. But for the idea that is behind it, but for the force that is behind it and the idea that the force is there to serve. So that remains always unseen. And that we can glimpse only when we enter the heart of the one who is doing and the only way, one of the best ways to access the heart of the person who is in the center field of action is, one of the best ways is through the poems. So it's, uh, you know, for example, I use this analogy like Sri Krishna, you read the Bhagavat. It gives us various events, circumstances, people understand it, misunderstand it, interpret it, don't interpret it uh, or misinterpret it. But when you read the Gita, then you understand this is Sri Krishna <laughs> with this. <laughs> this is the Samagrata of Sri Krishna. It gives us a very different... Uh, similarly about the mother, when Sri Aurobindo writes, the one whom we adore is the mother, is the consciousness force of the Supreme. Now then we understand, oh, this is the mother. So all her actions derive their value from this and not the other way around. So when Sri is coming from um, England to India, we... We know that, you know, we read last time about the budding poet, the budding, you know, politic, uh, understanding of the politics of the time. Also, we see that he is moved by those images. But even in those images, he sees something which is beyond the image itself. That is something remarkable. And we can also see in that poem, Coel, that how he, despite being for so many years in England, he was certainly missing India, not because of being homesick. But because of something special about India, and that's what we see in his epistles from abroad, where he describes to a mythical uh, friend, the, it's a letter which is um, a mythical, I mean, it's an imaginary letter, where he says that you cannot convince me that uh, you may call me barbarian, you may call me primitive, but you cannot convince me of the superiority of the European civilization. Rather, and he gives his reasons that you may say that what is the proof that the soul exists and I would say what the Rishi said that I have seen it. So, just before leaving, as such, Sri never identified himself with England. He says, says that in so many words that the country with whom he felt an affinity was France and not England. But, um, you know, for various reasons in this life, he couldn't go to uh, France. France came to him. That's a different story altogether. <laughs> And France came to him carrying the whole world, the burden of the world on her head. <clears throat> also because in his previous life he was in the French Revolution. The second reason why we use poetry as a medium is, uh, you see, outer life of any individual is only a brief selection of much that is inside, which remains unexpressed. It's just like in creation also, we see that from Pragya, a selection is made and comes into the Hiranyagarbha. And then out of Hiranyagarbha, a selection comes into the Jagratavastha. 
the same thing applies in our life that uh, what we call as the law of karma that in one given life there are plenty of unfinished lines of evolution we have walked on here there there several lines have opened the more uh, number of lives we have lived the more complex the personality becomes almost sometimes there are 365 personalities according to uh, you know in a fully developed person and uh, they all need expression but one life is a very short life so there is a selection made that these elements will come out in one life for a particular purpose and even in shirbindo's life we see this aspect when charu chandra dat wrote to shirbindo that he saw in shirbindo krishna and he wrote to you know when dilip kumar roy wrote to, to shirbindo and asked do you know charu he calls you chief 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 he used to call you during the revolutionary days and she said oh charu i know him very well he reminds me as one of those front ranks of humanity with whom i have fought battle of the ages not exact words but something to but in this life i could not call him because of my own preoccupations and because the work that had to be done was of a different kind so just imagine that there is a selection where he has come for a different kind of work and therefore much that is hidden behind but this that is suppressed inside takes the form of poetry because where is it is in subliminal states like states of consciousness so when we read shirbindo's poems one of the theme that occurs right through up till savitri is love compassion light but love and when you read the poems on love all the shades of love are there from what could be regarded by our human mind as you know love that turns bitter in agony and all that to the love which is the most transcendent love is savitri embodies in a human uh, you know human relationship so all these states which are inside the poet doesn't need to actually physically experience it and at one place shirvinda says this in one of the aphorisms if we leave it to god god will exhaust our sins subjectively <laughs> everybody has everything inside but if we try to do it our own way then you know there is much wandering and meanderings and follies because uh, he will do it how through subjective states so all these he must have experienced so when he was leaving england what was his state we know that uh, he was already writing poems and um, these poems are remarkable in many ways but he must leave england and he is using this wonderful image wherein there is the image of coming to india because he is called to india and there is simultaneously an image that he must make an ascension to higher planes both are beautifully together and the poem's name is envoy say voyage ni saying bye bye and it starts very interestingly as far as i know the only poem where it starts with four lines from virgil's Virgil's classic, and Virgil was uh, somebody who had a mental glimpse of the supramental possibility. He was a seer who has, you know, written Aeneid, one of the longest epics. We don't know whether Shirobindo had something to do with him or not, but these are the four lines from Virgil, who composed Aeneid over fifty years. So we can im- imagine the kind of Greek poetry. And in this poem, he starts with four lines that I won't read because. Surely Virgil is the one who takes people across Vaitarni. If he sees me read these lines with my horrible English accent, then he will note it in his diary and say, "Come, you fellow." 
So Virgil is immortalized in Dante's story, no? Where he, Dante goes and Virgil has come to ferry him across. So he says, you are just a ferryman here. Yes. But you wrote such marvelous poetry. He says, yes, yes. Who will take me beyond? Beatrice. Beatrice? That ordinary village peasant girl? Yes, yes. I had all these intellectual conceptions, but she had the experience. <laughs> it is remarkable, you know, if you look at this uh, Dante's uh, poem from that angle, it's something strange. Beatrice was none else but one of the forms of the Divine Mother. Divine Mother is played upon this earth in countless ways. It's not that every life has to be something that we regard as exceptional, extraordinary. There is extraordinary element, but it is inside. So here this poem last um, six, eight lines I'll read. <clears throat> this is on page 37. And why? For in Sicilian olive groups no more. So all these are images. Sicily we know, you know, one of the islands in the Mediterranean near Italy. So he has roamed, his consciousness has roamed in those fields of romance and outer beauty and charm. And he has drawn inspiration from these images. For in Sicilian olive groups no more, or seldom must my footprints now be seen, nor tread Athenian lanes, nor yet explore Parnassus or thy voiceful shores. Oh, Hippocrene. So Parnassus is another mountain in Greece. And you know, Hippocrene is one of the streams that flows. And she is regarded as a goddess of um, muse who inspires poetry. He says, all that time is over. I have uh, experienced all that, but now I must go further. And what that further is, at one level we see a higher plane of inspiration. At the same time, me from her lotus heaven Saraswati has called to regions of eternal snow. So this is the first Adesh, if I may put it. <laughs> That's why often what Shurabindra has said is most important, but what he has not said is also there which we don't know. He has been called to India. Me from her lotus heaven Saraswati has called to regions of eternal snow. Himalayas, at the same time, it is sublime purity. Eternal snow. And Ganges pacing to the southern sea. This, uh, again, all the three levels, Ganges, India is known by the Ganges, so it's the civilization which developed subsequently, the Saraswati and then the Ganges. And Ganges are the purest inspiration that comes from the... Um, not just, uh, yeah, beyond Shiva actually, <laughs> from the heart of Vishnu. <laughs> so that's why it has that purifying power. And Shiva has held it and then the Himalayas and then... So at second level it works as the purest inspiration. But mark the lines. This is something which I have been intrigued with. And Ganges pacing to the southern sea. Did he have a foreglimpse of Pondicherry? <laughs> Because in the Indian mythology, Sagar is regarded as a form of Ganges. And the story goes that when Sagar had, you know, he was wanting to have the Ganges to purify the sons who had died. So that's how. So when the Ganges came down, it entered Patal, then came out, it was flowing across and the whole world could have been drowned. Because he's coming from an infinite source. 
So what to do, what to do, they didn't know what to do. So the whole, there is a whole story about a demon and all that, but to cut the story short, uh, spaces were created upon earth in which the Ganges could drain. And therefore the Sagar, that's how the name Sagar comes, from Sagar, is regarded as a form of Ganges. And where does Ganges flow? Into which Sagar? Into the Bay of Bengal. So it is, uh, you know, interesting that Shurvinda is born by the side of, you know, their Bay of Bengal and eventually uh, the Bay of Bengal. This is a kind of Ganges. It's actually, in the Puranas, it's known as Ganges. And only the name Sagar is given because of the Sagar's efforts. And Ganges pacing to the southern sea, Ganges upon whose shores the flowers of Eden blow. So flowers of Eden are the purity of all life. You know, they are living on powers of the soul, soul purity, flowers. And Eden, where there is no sin, all is innocent, all is holy, all is pure. So these four lines, he is called to India, me from a lotus heaven, Saraswati, has called to regions of eternal snow. And Ganges pacing to the southern sea, Ganges upon whose shores the flowers of Eden blow. Now we know that he came through the ship and all the events that happened in the course. It had to happen that way, that his father received a telegram that the ship has drowned, but Shurabindu was on another ship and he died uh, with Shurabindu's name on his lips. So Shurabindu has landed on the shore of India in Apollo Bandar. Ordinarily, when one lands up with all these, you know, chaos, confusion, and he says that the first thing that he experienced was a vast calm descending upon him. And he says it was the gift of Mother India to him. That moment onward, the darkness that he had carried to England left him completely. So that was the moment as if just the entry on the Indian soil had this wonderful effect, marvelous effect. And after that, he joined the Baroda state service, uh, the Maharaja. And as I said, it's not the outer details, but I want to focus more on the inner. So outer details are anyways there, you know, all over in various biographies. But the interesting part is when Shurabindu comes to Baroda, what does he do? How does he start going about his mission? Now, there is a very beautiful saying in English that uh, fools tread where angels dread to step in. So, we see people immediately picking up a jhanda and, you know, rushing on to action. But Shurabindu is not like that. He teaches us to go behind, gather strength, harness your energies, purify them, refine them, prepare yourself, then plunge into action. So, we see that there is 10-year, 11-year or 12-year period or in fact 10-year period because 1893 has come, 6 February and 1902 he can be, it can be said that he plunged into politics at one level and then continued till 1910. So, we see those years of silent preparation but how was he preparing? So, we, we are told that Mahatma Gandhi took a voyage when he came from South Africa and he wanted to experience Indian life. So, he went into a third class carriage and sitting with the, you know, Harijans or whatever. So, he went around the ordinary folks to understand what ordinary people are. But Shurabindu took a reverse route. 
he went within into the heart of india into the core of what it meant into its soul to understand what it is so india is not about this person or that person even if all the human beings were not there india would remain a goddess and you know she can always bring up great civilizations out of her bosom so he plunged inside the vedas the upanishads the gita and that we find several places in his writings but there is one poem one or two poem where the, where he brings out that ethos of india so one of course which i'll not read today is um, there are three poems on radha one of them is on radha where it's very interesting fascinating poem uh, we'll read the ganges but just for those who want to read where he says that radha is telling krishna that you know you don't understand my suffering <laughs> so in next life you are going to become the maiden and i'll become the man <laughs> and you will run around me and i'll lure you and leave you then shubhendu's <laughs> poem on who no on krishna lures us then leaves us weeping again he lures us awakens love in us again he leaves us weeping because that's how we are ready for the delight we can't be ready for delight just in one leap so this is his way technique so radha says next life i'll be the boy you be the maiden and you experience life as i have experienced this radha it's an amazing poem but uh, <laughs> i don't know i feel tempted to read but anyways i'll come to to the ganges this is very difficult to navigate book for some reason where is where is the ganges <laughs> where where are the peach <laughs> um the peach just i need the peach the ganges ganges 256 256 see in the previous arrangement it was very simple you had all the sonnets together you had you know poems earlier together now it's pretty confusing so anyways 256 so this is in a sense it's very beautiful because he describes the uh way he has looked at the ganges and in a sense as we say that if you want to understand really india so one is read the books vedanta upanishad gita that's one thing second is read the stories purana third is travel to the himalayas and the ganges <laughs> there is a truth behind it when mother was told about banaras she said something very interesting yes it's a city with a occult spiritual atmosphere she said it's a very special city regardless of whatever we may say the crowd and everything she could perceive from there that it's an occult city mother herself had traveled to the himalayas as we know that and one of the experiences describes where she is sitting and right across in the guest house there is a there was a window with a kind of shade and sunlight fell upon it and she saw the entire himalayas through that little touch that touch became a catalyst to open door to a vision where she saw the entire himalayas now here is to the ganges hakin ganges hakin 
Thou that sweepest golden to the sea, hearken, mother, to my voice. From the feet of hurry, with thy waters pure, thou leapest free, waters colder, pure than ice. So, see the difference. It's cold and pure. Ice is something which is, gives the impression of something heartless. But she is full of love, compassion. On Himalayas, grandiose summits upright, in his circuit of stones, Shiva sits in breathless air. Where the outcast seeks his refuge, where the demon army moans, Ganges erring through his hair. So you see, when we see this, this image of Ganges, in a, in a poem, Shubindu describes a kind of quintessence of India and its culture and what he had gathered. So the purifying stream of the Ganges, the grand majestic Himalayan summits to which the rishis went, one of the ideals of Shiva, the hermit of hermits, sitting in an air where even life could not be, is Mahakal, breathless air. And who is coming to him? He is gathering around him the lost, the hopeless. In one of the places Epiphany describes Shiva, the refuge of the lost. They are coming to him, seeking refuge. All the Asuras and the Rakshasas. And that image that Ganges is erring through his hair. Down the snow white mountains speeding, the immortal peaks and cold crowd thy waves untouched by man. Man has not reached that purity. From Gangotri through the valleys, next their icy tops were rolled, bursting through Sivadri ran. So he's describing the course, and this actually a. Um, because Shurabindu's life, it was descent of another Ganges, the supramental Ganges, which will not only purify but transform. So um, he's describing the course and also describing the state in which he has to enter. That state where dying one continues to live. He describes in book uh, 1 Canto 5 of Savitri that he dared to step into that magic place where nothing made could live, where breath stops, and yet he dared to enter. So there, because unless one enters into that state, it is impossible to receive that stream and he wanted that stream to come down on earth. In Benares, stainless city by defilement undefiled. This is marvelous. God whose glory is undefiled even by defilement. That's why he is God. Who can defile that stainless purity? Ghats and temples... Lightly touched with thy fingers as thou ranst, laughed low in pureness like a child to his mother's bosom clust. And now this one ideal of Shiva, the great ascetic, and the other, where the steps of Rama wandered, where the feet of Krishna came. So it comes from that state, but the action is here on earth, the manifestation, the avatars who have wandered at your... See, sometimes people don't realize, they talk about, you know... Other day somebody was asking um, about ashram and all this. See, one way to look at ashram is an institution, leave that aside. That may interest some people and may not interest others. But if you look at ashram as the tapostali of Sri and the mother, if you look at the ashram as the 
manifestation of Shurbinda and the mother their Kripa Prashad, the Samadhi, the things they have touched, then it becomes a marvel and of perennial importance. As long as there is a single aspirant to the supramental realization, the ashram will retain its importance. Because it's not about the institution. Institutional frameworks will rise and fall and change. It's not really so important. Its importance is only that keep the place (laughs) as much intact as you can. But the tapasya and the vibration will be there perennially. So he, Shobindra is recapturing those lost footsteps of Rama and Krishna. Where the steps of Rama wandered, where the feet of Krishna came, there thou flowest, there thy hand clasps us. Bhagirathi, Janvi or Ganga. So these are names of Ganges, we know Bhagirathi because of Bhagirath Rishi and Janvi because the Rishi Janu, where she turned, uh, who took her in, in his mouth and then brought her out. It's a very symbolic story. Janvi or Ganga. And thy name holier makes the Aryan's land. So this is how this land is known as the land of the Ganges. What does it mean? It's the land where you can really be purified and redeemed. You don't need a holy water from outside to be sprinkled. This land is touched by that holy water and the feet of God. So it's holiest of holy. But thou livest Arevarth, but thou leapest to the sea in thy hundred mighty streams, nor in the unquiet ocean vast thy grandiose journeying seas. Mother, say thy children's dreams. So entire this yoga that this, uh, you cannot tell the very patal roots which are in the subconscious are struck. So ocean is always the symbol of the world forces. So it enters into these spaces. Down thou plunges through the ocean, far beneath its oozy bed in patals, laden gloom. Moaning over her children pain, our mother, Ganges of the dead, leads our wandering spirits home. So you see, he's used this entire image of the dead being redeemed. What is dead? Dead is not the body, the past is dead. It is the past that binds us. If we are not freed of the past, no amount of rebirths will free us. It's the past that binds us. So what does Ganges do? She breaks the chains of the past, that inner purifying Ganges. Not about. So outwardly, now like everything else, people believe that you know you put a dead body in the Ganges and uh, he'll get moksha. <laughs> And defile her, but she remains undefiled. That's a different story. But what is meant by the dead is invariably the past. And past karmas, the past loads, that holds us back. Even in our journey, anybody who has walked the path of yoga, few steps knows that what stops you are the habits of the past. And what does Ganges do? Purifying fire, it breaks those chains of the past. That's why she is mokshadaini. She is not mokshadaini because just like flow it in the water. But the image is so beautiful. Mourning over her children's pain, a mother, Ganges of the dead, leads our wandering spirits home. So they are wandering through cycles of birth and death and rebirth. Mighty with the mighty still thou dwellest, goddess high and pure. Iron Bhishma was thy son, 
who against ten thousand rushing chariots couldn't war endure. Many heroes fled from one. What is he doing by all this? Awakening in us the spirit of Bhishma. Shubhendra describes Bhishma and Sri Krishna when he speaks of the original Karma Yoga. He says, what we are practicing is not Karma Yoga. The original Karma Yoga which Bhishma and Krishna practiced, that was the Karma Yoga of the Aribhumi, not the way we have understood. So he says, your son who is purified from your waters, born of your waters, and what a capacity. So he is asking the Aryan children to become like that. 10,000 and he says in uh, another one of the letters to Barin, I am not interested in tens of thousands of people. I want hundred. Where each one of you who stand, there are hundreds who gather to your voice. That's exactly what he writes. So look at Bhishma scattering away the darkness. 10,000 armies who fly from one. Devavrat, the mighty Bhishma with his oath of iron power, smilingly who gave a full joy of human life and empire that his father's wish might flower and his father's son might rule. Who were these that thronged thereafter? Wherefore came these puny hearts? Now he is looking at his people from that vantage point. Not like, you know, they call them Harijan, that's fine. But in the original, oh, this is India of yore. That's why he says, recover the Aryan spirit. Not just live, live these teachings, live the Vedas, live the Upanishads, live the Gita in your life. That is what is required. So here in the poem form he is saying, Who were these that thronged thereafter? Wherefore came these puny hearts, these small hearts, who are worried only about their own little nostrums and their own little selfish advantages? Apter for the cringing slave. Small hearts. Slaves will ask what? Sir, give me little mungfali. Peanuts. That's very happy. But emperors don't... So he's asking us, not great in an aggrandized, egoistic way. When he prays to Ma Bhavani and says that, make us great, make our efforts great. May we shun the small, the narrow. Wrangling, selfish, Weak and treacherous vendors of their nobler parts. Sorry food for pyre and grave. This is how he describes the people of, you know. Who were these? He describes them. I said, what has happened to India? They are wrangling. Selfish people. Treacherous. Weak. Vendors of their noble parts who are selling away their souls. And for what? They become food for power and grave. Oh, but these are men of mind, not yet, with Europe's brutal mood alloyed. Poets singing in their chains, preachers teaching manly slavery, speakers thundering in the void. Motley were these men of brains. So he says, in spite of all that, they are not yet corrupted by the brutish impulsion of Europe. Look at this. <laughs> they are dreamers. Dreaming is not sufficient. You have to have that might inwardly. So this is a long poem. I'll just probably read. Buried are our cities. Fallen the apex dome. The Indian arch in Chittor, the jackals crowd. Krishna's Dwarka sleeps forever. Over its ruined bastions march. All the oceans thundering loud. Still 
Yet still the fire of Kali on her ancient altar burns, smoldering under smoky pall, and the deep heart of her peoples to their mighty mother turns, listening for a titan call. And then he takes the name of Pratapaditya, Sita Ram. I mean, it's a whole history in its essence. What should have been gathered as he went through Indian And at the end, he says, And once more, this Aryavarta, fit for heavenly feet to tread, free and holy, bold and wise, shall lift up her face before the world, and she whom men thought dead, into strength immortal rise. So it's a prophetic poem, and he has foreseen, and he says that from the smoldering ashes of the past, The India of the past is not dead. So it is bound to rise from the pyre and the grave. Not in icy lone Gangotri, nor by Kashi's holy fanes, Mother, has thou power to save only, nor dost thou grow old near Sagar, not our wildness stain, Ganges, thy celestial wave, Dakineshwar, Dakineshwar, wonderful predestined pile, Tell it to our sons unborn, where the night was brooding darkest and the curse was on the soil heaviest. God revealed the morn. So it's, uh, you know, his experiences of that time when he went through the Ganges, when he gathered all this into his uh, heart, lonely heart I must say, because who could have shared all this with him? And then, why say lonely heart? What he must be gathering. See, one of the qualities of Shiva was ready to renounce the past at one stroke. This is a capacity which is rarest of rare. At least, you know, people renounce some goods outwardly for inner, uh, you know. Then, but to renounce even the inner for something still greater, to renounce individual realization for hastening the collective realization upon earth, this is Shiva renunciation. And that's why when once Niruddha asked him, Sir, you must be busy with the Empyrean. He said, No, no, I am not busy with the Empyrean. I am into the subconscious mud because that's where the cleaning is going on. Somebody could renounce it like this. And there is this poem, Epigram. So it in a way summarizes life of Shurabindu in Baroda. In Baroda, we know that Shurabindu was living like a completely detached Brahmacharin. Is sannyasi in without the ochre robes and without the pretentiousness of being called a swami. Because pretensions are, uh, he was wearing the normal dhoti and kurta and you know whatever was needed, sometimes a suit also. But inwardly he was so detached from the money, he would bring, put the money in the bowl and whoever servants will take. Dhirendath has written a very good. Uh, uh, his reminiscences, two years he was with Shurabindo as his Bengali teacher and he expected a suited booted man and when he saw Shurabindo lying on the mat, he said, but sir, he said, why? I am a Brahmachari, I am supposed to live like this. So that's the life of Shurabindo and he describes it in just a very few words in his style of writing a poem which is called Epigram. If thou wouldst traverse time with vagrant feet, nor make the poles thy limit, fill not then. So he says, if you want really to 
conquer space and time and go beyond this earth if that is the aspiration if thou wouldst traverse time with vagrant feet nor make the poles thy limit fill not then thy wallet with the fancies cloying sweet <laughs> he had quite a wallet the maharaja's service 700 rupees at one point of time can we imagine then 700 what it would mean free access to maharaja anything you could get and even that won't remain with him he was giving so freely to anybody and everybody whoever came seeking help there are stories where you know the cook needed something for the daughter and he would give away thousands of rupees like that and people are anyways picking up everything from his bowl he didn't doesn't have money to send to his wife and when she asks is what to do there are so many people who depend on me should i be a thief and he, after all this he says i think i have led my life like a thief <laughs> i have given only two annas to god that is shurbindo what a kind of life you know with that money he could have made bungalows and palaces bought a house in uh, switzerland paris or god knows where but uh, lives so he is he is describing his own essence of life and telling us ki if you really want to lead the life of uh seeking god if i am i may put it that way and the beyond fill not then thy wallet with the fancies cloying sweet which is no stay to heaven aspiring men if you really aspiring for heaven then what is this <laughs> going to <laughs> but follow wisdom since alone the wise can walk through fire with unblinking eye the purifying fire through which one has to walk to gain knowledge it reminds me just sometime back this this kind of children are being born in this land so once a child i just asked it's a birthday what do you want to ask so the child had written a very nice prayer to mother so i said what do you want to ask ask anything which is within human limits which within my limits that i like to give so i thought maybe something outer no way maybe something like test by mother or something the child thinks for a while and said ask the child says give me knowledge i said this is beyond me but i can pray but just imagine these children are being born here 10 year old children don't ask for knowledge they ask for books and clothes and such things so this is the kind of if you want then follow wisdom if really you want you are aspiring towards the heights then follow wisdom since alone the wise wise can walk through fire with unblinking eyes your money and purse is not going to help you and uh, what he would have experienced i possibly surmise at uh, he had come to india and he had seen the hypocrisy of the western world and he must have seen here also what what lies here people are the same <laughs> so only you have great expectations from india see that is the problem and people say this problem in india that problem in india i said yeah yeah because from india people have lot of expectation if america goes and decimates a country you don't say anything because it's anyways what do you expect from brutes but you know from <laughs> from india you want to hold up the highest ideals and standards fair enough it's the same thing you know when you come to ashram you expect everybody to be saint seer sage yogi are baba don't put so much pressure you know <laughs> so, we are regulars you know ordinary people 
just trying to be little extraordinary but not even extraordinary we have to even lose that and become ordinary of the ordinary if you want to take up yoga that's how shivan all this uh, you know we carry in our head we are somebody someone special all this they will take away but make you special in their eyes in the true sense not this ordinary sense so this is a very beautiful poem incidentally he has translated uh, bhartahari's niti shatakam so there you can you have many such things so this is a poem on titled the just man just nyayat so you know you have to the king's main thing is nyaya he is known as someone who renders justice so he has seen the king and he has seen but uh, you know how he writes where is the man whom hope nor fear can move him the wise gods approve the man divine of motive pure and steadfast will unbent to ill whose way is plain nor serves for power of or gold the high straight path to hold him only wise the wise gods deem him pure of lust him only just only somebody whom gold cannot swerve whom nothing outward can swerve ambition lust he is free of that he alone can be just and he is the one whom gods approve though men give rubies though they bring a prize sweeter than helen's eyes this is something amazing you know suddenly the greek helen has come helen is the goddess of dawn and of course she is helen of the you know paris fame he costlier things than these things were they shall not win that man to sin the just man you can't you know bring all these rubies and gold and he will say okay for a change i will sign the document he will not do that though the strong lords of earth his doom desire he shall not heed their ire even if all the titans and because people don't like him don't want him he is a just man so they desire his doom nor shall the numerous common stormy voice compel his heart nor quell he shall not fear though heaven in lightnings fall nor thunders furious call nor earthquake nor the sea though fire though floods assail he shall not quail though god tear out the heavens like a page and break the hills for rage even if god says yet he would remain just blot out the sun from being and all the great stars quench he will not blench so he says where is that just man but this is the kind of ideal that should be in the world so even as a satvik man the ideal is to be the just the righteous but look at what kind of ideals should be this holding in his you know when he talks about the ideal of justice when he talks about the ideal of compassion this was in an inner life developing in him and most importantly as i said the uh, i i would dare say it, a title which has not been given to shurbindo but i would like to give that shurbindo the supreme psychologist it's not because of my you know psychological leanings but then he said that yoga is practical psychology and when you look at that his psychology went so far as to through the inner experience you see the buddings of the yogi transmuting pain into joy and as i said all the shades of love 
and that's where you see that he could what is psychology it's about inner forces and handling the forces that's what psychology is about to become conscious of the inner forces and know how to handle them and that's what we see in uh, shubhendu's poems so this very these meditations of mandavya mandavya as we know was a rishi who is one of the immortals and who Uh, knew how to change the karmic law he was one no, endowed with that his story we have several times shared so i won't share again except that he it seems as the legend goes he changed the karmic law by saying for a small sin so much of suffering a person has to suffer so in the cosmic there are two sides of cosmic law the cosmic truth and the cosmic ignorance so in cosmic ignorance it is like this so he said this cannot be how can this be and he changed the law now here you see this why i say supreme psychologist o joy of gaining all the soul's desire o stranger joy of the defeat and loss he has experienced all the shades o heart that yearns to uplift the world o fiercer heart that bends over its pain and drinks the savor i will love thee o love naked or veiled or dreadfully disguised not only when thou flatterest my heart but when thou tearest it this is the love he is embodying that it's um, you know i want to embody that love it's it's actually raj yoga raj yoga you are supposed to practice that every time you get an opposite impulsion like you have hatred bitterness replace it substitute it with love this how they or every time you have anger substitute it with peace forgiveness nowadays it's become almost you know on whatsapp gyan type but basically raj yoga practice you have to substitute the opposite shadow by the light so that's what he is describing thy sweet pity i love and mothers care for creatures for the joys i love thee that the lives of things possess and love thee for the torment of our pains i love you even though you give me pain nor cry as some against thy will nor say thou art not and then comes these master lines easy what kind of love we should have for the divine expecting nothing wanting nothing but complete giving of ourselves easy is the love that lasts only with favors in the shopman heart is easy everybody loves like that as long as you say you are good you are fine giving something ah love who smitten takes and gives the kiss he loves who smitten takes look at the beauty there's such a minute psychology not just giving takes receives and gives the kiss he loves because there is an egoism even in that i give i don't take you see what is subtle line and he reminds us of all the shades and this of course is a real experience he had actually he had this experience if i remember right in calcutta where he was stung by a scorpion possibly in calcutta or baroda but probably no that part i am not sure that it's correct as far as i remember standing on a terrace in calcutta he had this experience but apparently it's in baroda it doesn't matter so he was stung by a scorpion 
So what does an ordinary person, oh pain, this, that. Then you say, what is this? I pray, I call mother and see what happens. The first person to blame is God. Poor God, he must be having a tough time. Are, it is dark. Why would you go and stand in a place where there could be a scorpion? You surrender your common sense and throw it to the winds. And then when you are stung by a scorpion, it's the divine to be blamed. That's how we are. I can understand if on your bed scorpion creeped in a normal circumstances and you were bitten, then you can say, yes, Lord, you have done something to me. You, you plunge yourself in a bed of snakes and then you are bitten. Even then he saves. That's the beauty. But, <laughs> but here Shurabindu described when he is stung by the scorpion, he tries to transmute that experience into delight. So you see, how does a yogi live? Budding yogi, not even. Even when he had the fracture, he was doing the same thing. We look outside on the surface. Oh, Shurabindu, you got bit by a scorpion. What happened? Why? You have so much faith in God. Why this happened? Shurabindu would not say that. So he is describing that experience in one of the meditations. While on a terrace, hushed I walked at night. He came and stung my foot. He, the divine, he came and stung my foot. My soul surprised, rejoiced in lover's contact. (laughs) This is the life of the yogi. What he was experiencing at each moment of life. It's a very, I mean, ordinary, commonplace experience, commonplace, not so commonplace, whatever it is, we meet pain, we are hurt, thorns prick us, all this happens. So he says when he was stung by a scorpion, he is describing, he came and stung. And my soul was surprised, rejoiced in love's, lover's contact, but the mind thought of a scorpion and was snared by forms. Look at the intricate psychology. His soul rejoices. It's you who came and stung me. What a contact. But the mind, mind is the snare. So mind snared by forms. Why? Because mind conjures forms. It sees, oh it's a scorpion. Oh my God. It's a sting. It's a poison. All these things. That's what mother describes. You know the story of Sri Ramakrishna where a cobra bit him and suddenly said, Oh Kali, why have you done this? And became alright. So, but the mind will not allow. There are stories like that where people have done researches. But because the research was on WhatsApp, I will not quote it because I, <laughs> I don't trust WhatsApp research. But it's quite likely, at least I know in my village, where a man was bit by a snake. This is a true story, by the way, not a WhatsApp story. And the man woke up in the morning. At night he didn't die. Possibly a little bit alcohol. And he felt that some mosquito or something has bit him. In the morning he got up and he had actually because of his... It was a snake, na? He had turned over in that half sleep. And the snake was crushed under his... So when he got up and people said, Oh, there is a kret. He died. This is a true story I am telling you. Whole night he was lying, very <laughs> waking in his dream world. But the moment he saw the kret, and this used to be quite common in our village. And then the moment he saw the kret, oh my God. And he died. The shock of it, 
dead person. So the mind is snared by forms. Please don't try such stunts. They are... <laughs> okay, let me get bitten by a snake or a scorpion and see how I transmute it. That's not what it means. But the mind does get snared by forms. Still, still my soul remembered its delight. Denying mind and midst the body's pain. I laughed contented. So there is a tussle between the mind and the soul. And he asks the mind to keep quiet. And allows his soul to take over. So we see such sheets of yoga, intricate things happening there. And this is a wonderful set of poems. Even the denials he has faced. He says at one place that um, all that human beings experience, including doubts and everything I have gone through. At one place he says, I ask you to tread the sunlit path not because I myself have trod it. But I know that it exists. I don't want, neither me nor the mother wants the children to go through that. Some people, you know, not realizing what it means to travel the path unguided, unheeded. See, it's okay, we can also do it. Try doing it. And he goes through all these states. This again meditations of Mandavya. Lo, I have cursed thee. Lo, I have denied thy love. Thy being, strike me with thy rod. Convince me that thou art. Oh, leave it not to thy dumb messengers that have no heart. The messengers who say, God is there. Allah said, Daro. God said, Daro. Who have no heart. He says, no, no, no. You show me that you are. Give me that rod which people speak about. I want. So later on he could write that poem dream and he could say that story dream, Swapna. And he could say that no, divine is not like that. He doesn't indulge in reward and punishment. No wrath in the attack. No angered love. No exultation in the blow that falls. The cry that answers. Let me feel a heart. Even though an evil one. That throbs and is against our tears, our pressure and our search. So he is not uh, the Mayavadin, you know, want buried of the world and says, I want to, he says, I want to feel your heart. Even if it's a monstrous heart, I want to feel you. That is the kind of fire he is carrying. Beware, for I will send my soul across the earth and all men turn against thee at my word. There is no sign, there comes not any voice. And yet, alas, I know he will return. So these are some of the buddings of Shurabindo's experiences. Then there are many other experiences he had uh, on the mountain when he went uh, you know, with the king, with the yeah, Maharaja of Baroda, King Soundsword. But anyways, Maharaja of Baroda, <laughs> because kings have armies. So these Maharajas were no more had an army. It was the... Britishers who had usurped everything. So when he went, he got married. So what kind of love Shurabindo harbored in his heart? And then about the mountain, what he experienced when he went to Kali Temple and when he went to, when he had that carriage accident, what were those kind of experiences that he had that we will read next time. Namaste.